Yes. And that, of course, is the secret of a real sorcery. I don't need to say anything more now, do I? <laughs> Just give us a couple more details. <laughs> no, um, uh, what a wise person does in relationship to a simple exercise like do it now is they observe themselves in the midst of that and and in observing the resistance to doing it now then you begin to see what are the mechanisms and filters in place in yourself that cause you to procrastinate and that's the value because that's then the next level you, know, you always want to be looking for what's the next level of what you're doing because the seed of the next level is always in what you're doing now so you always want to make sure you're doing this level properly because that's how you find the seed to the next level. Yeah. If you're doing this level like, oh, well, I really want to be doing esoteric tantric massage, <laughs> you <know? laughs> then you're going, to miss, you're going to miss the path to where you need to go. But by doing whatever you're doing now properly, then you're giving the seed to the next level. So if you're doing like the do it now thing properly, then you start to see Oh, this is what keeps me from doing it now. This is, you know, I don't want to do it now. And then what is that? What's that about? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's always sort of inquiring into oneself or looking into oneself to see what that's about. And it has to be non-judgmental. You have to learn to do it without judgment. And that's also sometimes really difficult for people. I think a lot of people who get interested in spiritual work do so because they were um, judged so much as children that they feel they have to be better somehow, that somehow they're not good enough as they are, and they have to become some kind of a better human being, mm -hmm. some kind of a more extraordinary human being so that mommy or daddy will finally think they're good enough. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is one of the first things that needs to go. And unfortunately, it's not one of the first things to go. Yeah. <laughs> so it hangs out for a while. But um, I think that, uh, you know, we need to to relinquish judgment of ourselves so that we can observe ourselves with clarity. And then when you can observe yourself with clarity, then you begin to see where you need to go, what you need to change. Just like I was saying, if you listen properly mm -hmm. to another person, an answer to their question is usually pretty obvious. Well, if you observe yourself clearly and listen to yourself, and heaven, for, you know, forgive me for saying this, maybe listen to your inner child properly, you know, then you begin to see the answer of what it is you need to do differently. And then it's a matter of, well, are you willing to do something differently? Mm -hmm. And often the answer at first is no. And if you're in a non-judgmental space, then you let that be okay, that the answer is still no, in terms of doing something differently. Um, and yet there's also a pressure one must exert on oneself, mm -hmm. you know, like I was saying about leaving that time. Yeah. And that's that's that balance is an art and you know, I, I feel in my own case like sometimes I hit that and sometimes I don't mm -hmm. uh, but if you look at people who are considered like you know, spiritual masters or something they know how to do that for themselves certainly and also for, for people who are students of theirs mm -hmm. they know how to balance the pressure which needs to be relentless yeah. How to balance that relentless pressure with a complete acceptance, mm -hmm. and we need to learn to do that for ourselves. 
And I don't mean that in the sense, you know, that you should be your own guru, that you don't need a teacher or anything like that. I think teachers of some sort are very important because um, we can deceive ourselves very easily. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we need to um, behave as if we can't count on any teacher anywhere to take care of us, mm -hmm. that it's all up to us. You know, how does it go? You should um, act as if everything well, actually, it goes both ways. It's, uh, you should pray as if everything depended on God, and then work as if everything depended on yourself. Hmm. And also, you could say it the other way, you should work as if everything depended on God, and pray as if everything depended on yourself. You should pray with so much intensity. If your prayer is the thing that is going to make God pay attention to what needs to happen. So, you know, those things must be balanced. Uh, and that's, I think, a real challenge of sorcery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned this principle about finding the seed of the next step in, the, in what you're doing now, mm -hmm. the next level of what you're doing now. And that's a, um, like a principle of this kind of work. Yeah. And in terms of our discussion about the work, we know that there's no top end of the work, but it's a process, it's an ongoing process. And, but, but still, those principles are crucial to being functional in, the, in, in this domain. Do you, what other kinds of principles do you rely on that you, that you perceive or have been taught? Um, well, well, one that I've discovered, this is sort of a motto I use for myself, mm -hmm. um, is that self-indulgence is the essence of all bad art. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, pretty much sums everything up. Mm -hmm. Self-indulgence is, e is the essence of all bad art. And art, of course, can mean anything, because everything is an art form. So um, you could also say that self-indulgence is the essence of all evil. Whenever there is evil, it's because people are, are indulging themselves. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean strictly in a sort of, you know, Bacchanalian, um, you know, gluttonish way, but even, you know, just the pleasure of, of um, cutting someone off in conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you really examine yourself, if you're in conversation and you cut someone off in conversation, you know, or on the highway, whatever, <laughs> Um, there's a little pleasure in that that we extract. And we're trying to extract pleasure out of our lives, mm -hmm. out of our circumstance, by doing little things like that. You know, they reassure us that we have some kind of control or that we're stronger or that we're not being overwhelmed or something. And, you know, those things, those are our self-indulgences because they're not the truth. You know, like, um, it, it, I think it's possible to live very richly and elegantly and comfortably and not be indulging oneself. Mm -hmm. And it's possible to live in, I mean, I've seen a lot of homeless people, a lot of bums who are, I think, are extremely self-indulgent, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. wallowing in self-pity yeah. as one example, yeah. but also, um, you know, being sure that they're right. You know, mm -hmm. being really sure that one is right is an extreme form of self-indulgence. Yeah. <laughs> and rigidity is an extreme form of self-indulgence. You know, pain, being 
and, and having one's life be full of pain, you know, is extremely self-indulgent. Um, and I think if, if we can learn to eliminate self-indulgence from our lives, um, there's tremendous, tremendous clarity and power and compassion that comes in that. And also, you know, being really macho discipline is tremendously self-indulgent. So it's not just a matter of, of some kind of mechanical discipline, because right. mechanical discipline can be just as self-indulgent as, as sloth and, and gluttony. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of observing oneself ruthlessly with compassion and observing when we're indulging ourselves. And it's excruciating, because, I mean, I know for myself I'm always doing it. You know, I, I, I was thinking the other day that, you know, the reason saints and stuff are so peaceful and quiet isn't because, you know, they're sublime. It's because after you do this work for a while, you begin to just see what a schmuck you are. <laughs> and, like, you don't feel like saying anything. Like, you come to realize you don't have anything of value to say, you know. You start to feel like you have nothing of value to contribute. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, I better not say anything here. I'll just make things worse. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, that's maybe, that could also be a, a self-indulgent to feel that way about oneself, but but you begin to see that, uh, you know, every moment we're up to something shady, mm -hmm. you know, in every moment. Like a example. Oh, I mean, you know, I mean, I could, uh, just sitting here in this interview, you know, I'm sort of trying to score points, you know, in some way. I mean, there's, there's certainly that in operation, you know, wanting to score points, and, you know, watching your face to see, oh, which things does Clint like, you know, am I making a good impression, or maybe I'll you know, emphasize this point, or maybe I can get a jab in at Clint about something that I'm mad at him about from two years ago, somehow here, you know, whatever, whatever, or just all the time. What we choose to eat, you know, where we choose to step walking down the road. You know, there's a bug, I think I'm going to step on it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or, I don't think I'll step on that bug because I'm cold and I've slept all life. You know, either one of those moves is like disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you see yourself doing that, it's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Become a Jane, you know, with a cloth over your face. And, you know, those guys in India oh, who yeah. like, they don't want to kill anything, so they take a little branch and they like sweep the road where they're walking to make sure they don't yeah. step and mm -hmm. on a bug or but still you're stepping on amoebas and microbes and, mm -hmm. and that's the other thing is that it's inevitable that we're going to make mistakes in this life this this is a this is a dark hell realm this world mm -hmm. you know in the scheme of things in the spectrum of, of possibilities this world is pretty hellish and it's I think God made it that way you know if you believe you know, I don't mean this in some kind of Christian, you know, way of like hellfire and damnation, but I just mean that that experience is imperfect. Physical, whenever you have physical experience, there is imperfection. You know, it's inherent in in existence. I mean, even the most beautiful sights of nature, you know, beautiful tree, you go look at it and the leaves have been nibbled on by bugs, you know, and and the bark is falling off and there's the tree has different diseases and, and parasites. 
I mean, that's just the way it is. So I think in, in terms of the human condition that, you know, we make mistakes, we do horrible things, you know, we step on bugs, and we hurt people's feelings, and we make wrong decisions. And, and um, so I think that, you know, that's probably why Buddhists, you know, emphasize compassion the way they do. Because if you try and find, find out how to make things perfect, or you try and make things perfect, you're going to be in agony, which is, you know, maybe one of the shortcomings of a lot of forms of Christianity is that it's because they're trying to make, they want things to be, you know, nice and light and sweet. And life is not some fucking Christmas day. It's like, it just isn't. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's a, it's a balance of, of realizing that we are at choice for everything. And at the same time, that circumstances are really horrific. Um, so finding a course of action for oneself that has integrity in relationship to both those things, both our complete responsibility for our experience and our complete helplessness in the face of the horror of existence, the balance of those two things is, is the, the path we have to walk, I think. And it's not necessarily a flashy path. Yeah. You know, people who, who are interested in sorcery because they want something flashy will eventually either leave the path disappointed or they'll stay on the path disappointed. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, disappointment is maybe uh, what we're here for, in some sense. Mm -hmm. We take disappointment as it is as a higher principle, not just the ordinary victim position. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously, I'm not talking about a victim position. A lot of the language I'm using sounds maybe like a victim language, mm -hmm. but it's not. People need to understand. And, you know, <laughs> you know like they always say people who are just beginning will never, never, if you tell them it's horrible, they won't believe you. Right. <laughs> right. They'll say, oh, you're just exaggerating, you're just kidding, and then, when they're at it 20 years, they'll say, oh, this is horrible. <laughs> but at the same time, it's wonderful, you know. Yeah. So it's not like you'd want to trade it for something else, but it is horrible. It's devastating. Yeah. It's crushing. You know, we're just put on this planet to be, in one, you know, and we're just put here to be abused as children. And even if our parents don't mean to abuse us, I mean, life is abusive to a child because children is, don't have the resources to interpret experience necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, in a way that makes it non-abusive. So even in the best circumstance, you know, a child sees a dead bug on the ground and they could interpret that in a way that, is, you know, causes horrible neurosis. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing anyone can do about it, you know, because a child saw a dead bug on the ground. Or two bugs eating, you know, one bug eating another bug. It's like you can't you can't shield people from that experience. You know, like the story of the Buddha, where the, the king was trying to shield his son from all this experience, and it was not possible. You just can't. So, um, you know, I think that's that's our experience. And and if we relate to our experience below the surface of things, then even though some aspect of our experience may be uncomfortable or whatever, then we're still getting the point. We're still 
gaining those subtler substances that we came here for. You know, if you believe that we came here from somewhere else or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's not that he who dies with the most toy wins. Conformity. Conformity. <laughs> I hate conformity. <laughs> there. <laughs> what else? <No. laughs> Keep going. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, conformity is, uh, I mean, especially in group situations. I guess you asked me about the original too, like mm -hmm. group, group work. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are, there are hazards to group work. And the fact that, you know, I was picked on by my big brothers as a kid and therefore I distrust all people and all group situations mm. is irrelevant to the fact that there are real dangers to group work mm. and they have to be taken seriously. And um, I think very seriously. I don't think we can go too far in taking them seriously. I mean, maybe, you know, probably we can't go too far. but. I don't think we're. I don't think human beings are in very great danger of going too far because, um, you know, first of all, a book that everyone should read is um, "Prisons We Choose to Live Inside" by Doris Lessing, which is transcripts of talks she gave on uh, CBC Radio. Mm -hmm. uh, are you familiar? With no, I have not. It's great, great book. Great book. And and she basically goes through. You know, she's like a, she's a student of Idris Shah, so she's very methodical. And she goes through and talks about, um, you know, even referring to sociology and experiments in sociology. And her main thrust in that book is that there are laws to human interaction in terms of what people will predictably do in a group. You know, sort of group head things that happen predictably, regardless of culture. They always happen. Whenever you get a group, it doesn't matter how educated they are, you know, whatever, they will become a mob. And you know, things like the Milgram experiment, yeah. um, which, you know, she points that out. And, you know, she talks about the Milgram experiment. And she says, you know, people who know about the Milgram experiment, when they hear me mention it, all the sociologists are going to roll their eyes and groan, okay, here's the Milgram experiment. She says, that's true. But a lot of people don't know what the Milgram experiment is when you talk about it. And she said, that's horrifying. What's the Milgram experiment? Yeah. Everyone should know. Mm -hmm. When you say Milgram experiment, people should go, yes, and they should sort of become somber a little bit. You know, there's a, there's a, um, uh, Peter Gabriel has an album, uh, uh, what channel is it? Anyway, it's got, there's a song called Milgram 23 or something, mm -hmm. and the lyrics are basically like, we do what we're told, we do what we're told, told to do. You know, the Milgram experiment, for those who aren't familiar with it, you can be forgiven because you've been cheated by the educational establishment that <laughs> hasn't told you what the Milgram experiment is. The Milgram experiment was the one in which uh, people were, were told that they were helping in an experiment um, studying human beings' response to electrical shock or something like that. And 
the people who were told this didn't realize that they were, in fact, the subjects of the experiment. They thought they were helping the scientists do experiments on other people. And so they were in a booth, and there was someone um, on the other side of a, a wall or something, and the people uh, who were the volunteers were asked to administer electric shocks to this person on the other side of the wall, no matter what you know, they heard on the other side of the wall. And they were being instructed by you know, the researcher to just keep increasing the voltage a little bit at a time. And the point of the experiment was to see how far people would go in increasing the voltage until they refused. Yeah. And the, the person on the other side of the wall who was ostensibly receiving the electrical shocks mm -hmm. was actually in cahoots with the researchers. And they were they just had a little gauge showing them what the voltage had been turned up to. Uh -huh. And they made an appropriate scream, you know, for <laughs> relative to the, the voltage. Yeah. And as the voltage got higher and higher, they screamed more, they like begged the researchers to stop the experiment. They said, Oh, you know, you've got to stop, I can't stand it. And then finally they let out like a piercing wail and then were silent. And, you know, it was not unusual in this experiment for people to cooperate, the volunteers, yeah. who didn't realize they were the subjects of the experiment, to continue cooperating, even to the point where, from what they could tell, the person on the other side had passed out or died yeah. from the electrical shocks that they were administering. And the rationale, you know, in the post-interview process, you know, after that, they were, people were interviewed about their participation. They all said, well, you know, I felt extremely uncomfortable doing that. You know, of course I didn't want to hurt the other person, but I was just doing what I was told. And that's the kind of society we live in, that that's what people have been trained to do. And, and to a degree, I think it's natural human nature, you know, if you agree to some kind of authority figure, you just kind of go with it. But I think, you know, certainly if you want to be some kind of sorcerer, <laughs> you have to have the presence of mind to say no mm -hmm. in such a circumstance. And, you know, I don't know if I would. I mean, obviously now I know about the Milgram experiment, so mm -hmm. if I were administering electric shocks to someone, I would catch on. But who knows, given another format to the experiment, mm -hmm. you know, I would be perhaps just as likely as anyone else to do that. And that's, I think, that's one of the main points that Doris Lessing makes in her book, mm -hmm. is that we cannot we cannot seriously believe that we would not do the same thing. Yeah. And the education that people need is to realize that, yes, we probably, each of us, would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And of course we want to say, no, 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 I would never do that. And spiritual students, of course, always say, no, I would be, I would be aware enough not to do that. And I say, don't count on it. And that's her point in that book, is don't count on it. It's called uh, Prisons We Choose to Live Inside by Doris Lessing, the same woman who wrote Shikasta and that whole great series. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, uh, and that's just one example of, of group dynamics that you need to be aware of. <coughs> Certainly if you're in an organization, as Athenor is, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to become that other Athenor <laughs> right. that people are afraid you are in Europe. So um, you have to take those things into account. If Athenor becomes big and people are in positions of power, you know, what's to keep you from becoming little Nazis? Uh, so that, that kind of dynamic where power 
you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's just one example of the kind of group dynamics. Um, another example of, of uh, you know, where, where conformity, uh, I mean, conformity is just unconscious participation in groups and, and sacrifice of integrity for the sake of, um, you know, acceptance within the group or, or even um, one's commitment to the aims of the group. So sacrificing personal integrity for the sake of what you perceive as being the group aim or um, your desire to be accepted within the group, that's you know, maybe the basic definition of conformity. And all the forces that, that push us in that direction, there are literal psychological forces that push us in that direction. And there are psychological forces because the human psyche is wired in a certain way. We are we are social beings. We are a kind of herd animal, and um, we have to realize that we're not immune to very primitive mob mentality kind of stuff. And given the chance, and given the right circumstances, we will succumb to those things. And it may not be possible to to eliminate that a hundred percent, but we should certainly be vigilant. Um, to watch out for those things. And again, that's another thing of self-observation. So whether you agree with that premise of you know, conformity being evil or not, it's again, it's a way of observing ourselves and seeing what our psyche is about. Mm -hmm. Because in any case, we need to be free of our psychological dynamics, or able to be free of our psychological dynamics. And if we go around telling ourselves that we're not subject to primitive impulses of the mind, then we're setting ourselves up for, for being hooked by, by those, you know, by the first flashy thing to come along, the first flashy messiah that promises to, to fulfill our spiritual aspirations. And, uh, you know, I think uh, in terms of, of, of combating the forces of conformity and also of, of learning to be able to be free of one's own psychology, we have to be free of language. You know, we have to be free of jargon, free of the conscription of certain descriptions. So I know that in Athenor you do a lot of work with creating language mm -hmm. and, and you know, languaging things the way that fits your intention. Yeah. But there's, a, there's another side to that coin, which is that that can also lead to um, a stylized experience. Yeah. You know, you can stylize your experience in a way that is not objective, uh, and which can delude you into thinking that you are exempt from the laws of the psyche. And if you look at, like, you know, all the cults um, and all the groups that have gone wrong, mm -hmm. um, you'll see that that's, I think, you know, I haven't done a scientific analysis of the data, but I'd be willing to, to wager that you would find that as a consistent quality. There's a certain investment in jargon as an insulation from one's experience. Um, so that's, you know, in, in terms of the development of a culture within Athenor, I think that's something to watch out for. Yeah. Uh, and it's, 
it's not impossible to watch out for that. But it's a two-edged sword. The development of of language that in, you know that empowers the vision that you're that you're creating, mm-hmm. and that you know helps people align with that. The flip side of that is that you're also then, by the laws of the mind, yeah. you're you're enforcing a kind of conformity. So how do you train people? How do you create the opportunity for people to train themselves to use language intentionally so that they are um, you know, aligning themselves with the vision of what you want Athena to be, while at the same time not dumbing themselves down through the easy use of rhetoric. Yeah. So when rhetoric becomes too easy, that's when that's when you can sort of see that you're going down the dark path. Yeah. Um, so I think that people, I mean, I, I'm fond of just inventing my own language. Yeah. You know, I like to do that. Uh, and I think it would be good, it's a good skill for people to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think people ought to be able to go and, you know, talk to a skateboarder mm-hmm. and get them to understand esoteric spiritual principles. Yeah that you can talk about, about by talking about skateboarding. Yes. You know, if you, if you understand enough about what skateboarding is, and if you understand what it is human beings are looking for, then anything that people are passionately devoted to must be providing them with something of what it is that people are looking for. Mm-hmm. So you can, if, if you understand that principle, you can go to anyone who's passionately devoted to anything you know, collecting beer bottle caps, you know, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. you can find a way to communicate the principles of, of work on self yeah. you know, to them. And I think a sorcerer needs to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, particularly people who are trying to make something available, if they're, if they're trainers in Athenor or people who are just trying to enroll their friends. Right. Um, you know, you need to be able to, and again, that's an example of being able to listen to where people are at. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know that what that all people are basically looking for the same thing, you know, some kind of fulfillment in their life, and if you listen then to what it is they're they're about mm-hmm. and how they express themselves, then that will lead you to what, how to communicate to them what it is you're passionate about. And that's where the connection happens. The connection has to happen b- beyond words. Yeah. And that's what you're looking for, the connection that's beyond words. Yeah. And within the culture of Athenor, I would say that's what you're looking for, is that connection that's beyond words. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that can be held as a question, too. Like, how do you create a culture in which people are using language intentionally and maybe the thing of intentionally is the key. Where people are using language intentionally to, to reinforce and sustain that culture without it becoming mindless jargon that people are then using as a crutch or as a filter to protect them from experience mm-hmm. and to protect them from cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, related to that, the idea that questions are generally more important than answers. So even if you don't come, I mean, it may be dangerous to come up with an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as you come up with an answer that you're satisfied with,
-hmm. Yeah, so, so there's a real danger in finding an answer to one's questions. Mm -hmm. it's, it's best, perhaps, to have it be a perpetual question, because as soon as you find the answer and you say, this is the answer, mm -hmm. then that answer itself becomes a problem. It becomes the rigidifying force of conformity, and then you're a bunch of, you know, a bunch of Muslims on a jihad. Yeah. You know, they're like, <laughs> I read this thing, that the, um, the uh, Taliban, which is this political party in one of these Muslim countries, okay. they just like came to power, okay. and they're, Mus they're, they're like Muslimizing the country now, everything, mm -hmm. they want to make it into another Iran or whatever. And uh, they, were, they issued like an edict, basically telling people that they should not use paper bags when they buy things, you know, things should not be purchased or carried in paper bags because paper, the Quran is written on paper, therefore we respect all paper. You must use plastic bags when you're shopping. And as a result of this, you know, when that announcement was made, there was a run on toilet paper because people were afraid that toilet paper was going to be the next thing that would be banned. You know, and it's a ridiculous circumstance to create something like that. I mean, yeah. that's not an expression of respecting the Quran, right. banning paper bags. Right. You know, the idea I think was that you know recycled paper may have, there may the Quran may have oh. been on some shred of paper that was in the recycled paper. You know, but still, I mean, you know, do you want? You certainly don't want to create that kind of culture. But the human animal is eager to create that kind of a culture. Yeah. Within each of us, there is a monster that wants to do that, yeah. given the chance. So we have to be constantly vigilant for anything that would, that would go in that direction, which can be very frustrating, especially if you're trying to create a system that is going to be um, self-sustaining in an economic way, that is going to generate income, for example, mm -hmm. you know, which you have to do. In, in this world, yeah. you know, unless you have some kind of feudal feudal patron lord who is going to just you know hire you, give you money, um, you have to have some kind of a sustainable economic system, mm -hmm. uh, money making system, and so given that pressure, the temptation to codify things and rigidify things is very strong, and and it may be that it just has to be a perpetual struggle. It may be that if you create something that is like financially secure, that you're going to be in trouble. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's, I mean, I'm thinking of my own business as I say this, because yes. I've been struggling with this very issue, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe this explains why things are the way they are in my business, and I don't like hearing that. Mm -hmm. I don't like this idea at all. But it may be, you know, I mean, this is what things are pointing at, um, that there's a certain level of financial chaos that is just going to be there because if you take the steps that create financial security, mm -hmm. that you're killing something that's more important. Um, and I don't know, I mean, maybe there is some way to, uh, to create a system that will sustain it with enough prosperity that you don't have to be sweating and struggling. You know, I mean, I would certainly like to find that for my own business. Yeah. I'm sure you guys would like to find that too, but, but it's essential not to disregard the long-term consequences. You know, like, you know, 
like the Native Americans say, whenever they would make a major decision, they would. It's called the wisdom of the grandmothers. It's like, how will this decision impact the next, you know, our children for seven generations? And if you're looking, if you're just looking at the bottom line of your business, of your, of your spreadsheet, you're not looking for seven, you're not looking seven generations down the road. You're yeah. just not. How much time do you have? Uh, I'm okay for time. Um, you can go to 3.30? Well, 3.30 would be pushing it for me. I'm not sure I want to go that long, but I would say I could go to 3. three. So that's 20 minutes. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know if I've got more than 20 more minutes left in me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I could talk to you for days, man. I would love to do that. Let's say you only had 20 minutes. Okay. And I'm just <laughs> to impart total <laughs> wisdom of my, of my not, supreme knowledge. No. It's not, not, <laughs> Not the total wisdom, but it's like the the nitty gritty. It's like you know, I'm starting out. It's a big wide, you know, insane world out there. It's a big wide world. Yeah, I'd actually like to sit in the sun now. I'm getting okay. a little bit chilly. You know what? No. Okay. Um, I'm good too. Um, no, it's what, 19 minutes. Now. Um, what you know? What is it that you could? Like part anyway, part of what you said was like what was missing in our educational system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like like there's these big holes that they just stuff it in and tell us. So it might be something like that that you could say. You know, to just start start packing in things. Well, they didn't tell you about this. And they didn't tell you about that. Or okay. um, um, uh, it could be just some some like whatever like on your work in your work. You know, in your own efforts and your own struggle and successes, you know, how can, how can, what can you tell me that would help me succeed in this thing? Mm. You know, what, what people need. Yeah. What did they tell you? didn't tell you. Well, the first thing they didn't tell you is that they, they, they didn't know what to tell you and what not to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, we're starting out pretty just like basic normal people, uh -huh. you know, and like you said, perhaps they were, uh, you know, the parents said, you know, the implication was, well, you got to, you know, be something better and mm -hmm. get more approval acceptance. Right. And that might be the motivation or maybe they just have, a, have had an experience of a break in what's normal in the world, you know, a break in, hey, how are you? <laughs> 
I haven't seen the audio user. Amethyst and Aurora sent over some things for you, or a thing for you, and I'm going to give it to Drew. I'm going to see her in about a half hour. She's going to come by here. But um, we've been thinking about it a lot. I haven't seen audio anywhere. You know, so what, like, were you going to say, I mean, people are like, we're, they're up against well, being I think normal. That, yeah, know? I think, um, I mean, just watching you with reason, think of like, you know, we're not taught generally how to be men and how to be women. Yeah. You know, so there's a real, um, you know, I guess one of the things which some people know, because I mean, it's sort of a popularized New Age idea, but is that a lot of the societies we call primitive mm -hmm. and under, undeveloped mm -hmm. are a lot smarter than us mm -hmm. about a lot of the things that are just have to do with being a basic human being and that are that ought to be the foundation for any kind of life. Mm -hmm. Just like in tribal societies, the way men are together and the understanding that is present of um, what it is when men are together mm -hmm. and that there is a an energy of maleness that um, is something objective. You know, it's like out there, it just like you know, the sky is blue. There is a male, there is a male archetype mm -hmm. and a way of being that um, that does not, uh, you know, it doesn't uh, go against. You know the possibility of people being individuals and, and expressing that energy. You know, for men, I'll use men as an example because I'm a man. But I think, you know, women can certainly find ways of saying the same thing about themselves. That uh, you know, there is something inherent in manhood that um, can be found. Uh, in very simple ways that is often very different from culturally defined you know roles of manhood I mean you know the most extreme example is the macho thing mm -hmm. you know that a lot of men think they have to be strong and, and um, dominant and uh, you know unfeeling and never cry and, and all that and um, you know, people are starting to get educated enough to know that that's ridiculous, and yet um, it, it runs even deeper than that. And I think um, one thing that's it's kind of like there's a um, a stream or a there's a an archetype of human growth. Um, well, I, I like to think of it as a stream, a flow that naturally is supposed to be there. You know, for example, from generation to generation, that um, is just a, a pattern. You know, some people call it the will of God or whatever, but just to be very practical about it, um, there, there is a human nature that we can align ourselves to. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten out of step with that. You know, human, human society has disconnected itself from that. 
and tried to create, you know, modern society, say, modern Western society, has tried to create um, man-made alternatives based on what we think ought to be right. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that those models um, are disconnected from the actual flow of life, we are, um, you know, we're going to be frustrated. Yeah. And to reconnect to that stream of, you know, the natural organic process of life, um, there are lots of ways of doing that that are uh, that aren't fancy. I mean, just, uh, I should tell Debbie something. Actually, hang on a second. Stop that. Hey, Deb, we're going to be a while. Do you want to take the key and change and come back? All right, so we'll just keep going until you get back. I know, but I've got to do some stuff at the studio, too. We'll go to 3.15. Would that work for you? Okay. All right. Okay. Great. Um, so, it's like, uh, you know, when I was doing Attitude Problem, mm -hmm. I just observed that uh, young men are hungry mm -hmm. for the attention and regard and admiration and respect of older men yeah you know it's like and it's not just because they're they're brats <laughs> you know there's something organic mm -hmm. about you know and Robert Bly talks about this kind of thing that young men need to be admired mm -hmm. um, because admiration is a certain kind of attention that provides a certain kind of food for the being mm -hmm. that is necessary it is indispensable it cannot be dispensed with. Hmm. And um, there are a lot of things like that, you know, where um, if we just connect with the natural flow of how things ought to be, that we get a tremendous food. Because I found in doing that, you know, that there was something in me, you know, that older men need to offer that to younger men hmm. just as much as the young men need to get it from older men. And, you know, and the same thing is true between women, I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe admiration isn't the same, maybe admiration isn't the word, but there's something, you know, that's needed. And there's something that men must get from women yeah. and something women must get from men. And, you know, back and forth, all around, there's all these relationships and, like, you know, like in Oriental culture, a lot of relationships are very strictly defined. Mm -hmm. It's a very strict protocol. And we look at that and say, oh, how primitive, you know, or even in our own culture in, in you know, ancient days, there's a lot of protocol. And we think that's primitive and, and um, too restrictive yeah. and ignorant. But it's not so ignorant. You know, there are aspects of those things that it would we would do well to investigate and, and embody and give of ourselves um, 
and and what we get back is is much more than what we give. Um, Yeah. So the just got done on the 18th of March, 1997 in Prescott, Arizona.